Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about the idea of fad or future. Uh, We're going to talk about investing in innovation. Uh, We're going to talk about bubbles of the past. We're going to talk about asset classes that may or may not have entered bubble territory. We're also going to talk about how do you invest in innovation while avoiding bubbles? Um, So really just kind of an idea of Man, investing in innovation is a great opportunity, but it can also lead to disastrous outcomes if it's not done prudently. But Justin, I feel like a good place to start this conversation is, like, what is a bubble? I'll give kind of a just a gut answer. And a bubble is something that's kind of hard to define because you could probably say that there are total scam bubbles, there are real assets that are real investments that hit bubbles. Um, so a bubble could be something that is just downright bad and something that, you know, is kind of a scam. Uh, but it could also be something that's totally legitimate. It's just that the price for it has now reached any any considerably normal levels. So I would say that a bubble is when a price removes itself from any fundamentals. Uh, and so whether that is a PE ratio or, you know, whether you're getting to a proper valuation of what should a stock be worth, or maybe it's a house um, or a housing market, whenever the price gets so high that there's a disconnect from the fundamentals behind why that price should be where it is, that disconnect for me is what a bubble is. But what would you say, Jared, what's kind of the a little bit more of a textbook answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a textbook, but I'm going to pull one from Rob Arnott, who's a quantitative manager and just a wealth of knowledge. I'll use his definition. But I do think before I talk about bubble, like bubble is not a Ponzi, right? So like a bubble is like a little overzealousness about a real thing. Good. A Ponzi scheme is overexcitement about something that isn't real. Right. So like I would just carve those, carve out those two things. Like Ponzi schemes aren't bubbles because it's not, it's not a real thing, right? That's fraud. Um, but like, if it's a bubble, like a bubble, like as Rob or not would define it, he wrote a great paper on this. And so I'll we'll link to it in the show notes, but it, a bubble quantitatively, it offers little chance of any positive risk premium relative to bonds and cash using any reasonable projection of expected cash flows. And then the second thing is a bubble sustained because investors believe they can sell the asset to someone else for a higher price tomorrow with little regard for the underlying fundamentals, right? So, so Justin, it's exactly what you're talking about. There's an overzealousness, right? Like the, the picture is so optimistic growing forward that like expectations are just unreasonable, right? And, and the primary, you know, the primary mechanism for investment isn't underlying fundamentals. It's FOMO and the idea that I'm going to be able to sell this to somebody for more money because the excitement is just so palpable. So I think that, you know, that's what I would say a bubble is. Um, so I think now that we've kind of talked about that, uh, do you want to identify bubbles? Uh, do you want to talk about bubbles that have popped and do bubble watch? I like that. Yeah, I think it makes sense to cover what are some bubbles that have that have been present in the past, I don't know, five years. So I think that's a good place to start. What are some of the bubbles that we've seen recently? And then 
I think it would also be fun to talk about what are some real investments that over the past few years have arguably entered into bubble territory. Um, and then we can kind of go from there uh, and talk about, you know, maybe some timeless investment principles. But that first one bubbles over the past five years. Jared, it feels like we've got to mention crypto here. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And like, you know, these it's this category, like it's easy to say that these were bubbles because they've popped. Right. And the yep. interesting thing is like, not all bubbles will pop or not all bubbles have popped. Right. So this category we're talking about is like, it was, it's easy in hindsight. It's easy with hindsight to say that it was a bubble because it popped. Right. Like think about the trillions of market cap, or probably not trillions, but billions of dollars in market cap that we just got eviscerated uh, with everything that happened with SBF. Right. And uh, FTX and you know the liquidity cascade, but yeah, crypto is interesting because Justin, we have a podcast that we can link to in the show notes. Uh, my dog making a guest appearance here for those of you on video. Love it. We have a podcast talking about this idea of crypto. We said, hey, we're really bullish on the asset class. One of the problems with it is there's no underlying cash flows. Right, you're you're basically buying these coins and hope that someone else will pay more for them later. Right. And two, right, with blockchain and with Bitcoin and Ethereum, you are paying for block space, right? And and Bitcoin is just the general ledger. So it's a you know, so it's a new new monetary system. And for Ethereum, it's new smart contract computing power, right? So, you know, there is a case for somebody paying more for the future if 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 transactions are authenticated via those different blockchains. And so I feel like our podcast, you know, I'll link to it so we could kind of just do an honesty check. But I feel like we had a very measured approach basically saying, hey, there's going to be tons of opportunity. We think it's going to revolutionize things, but we don't know how to invest in the asset class. We don't know how to diversify. And there's not really any good way to invest in it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of fun to look back on that. So that was a podcast, gosh, maybe two years ago. And I'm glad that I'm pretty sure I'd have to, you know, listen to the entire thing again, but I'm pretty sure that I'm really excited about everything we said in that podcast. And Jared, we recorded that in the heart, in the middle of the bubble. Um, and so I remember having conversations with people that, you know, they were heavily invested in crypto, making incredible returns. And obviously they have this internal dilemma of, well, why would I buy into a diversified global equity portfolio when I can make this in crypto? Um, and so it's easy to have this conversation now, two years ago, but we forget, gosh, two years ago when you were in the heart of it, that was, that was really a different time or two and a half years ago. And so, you know, a lot of our principles there were, Hey, if you are a passive investor, so if you are looking to be a passive investor in global innovation, um, well, technically if you take that to its core, then you should have exposure to every asset class in the world. And so crypto at the time got up to about 1% or 2% of all the uh, global market capitalization of every asset in, in the world. And so it kind of made sense to start to ask the question, well, if you're a passive investor, you know, maybe you should consider it. So that's the first point. Second point is calling out that, hey, this is a very uh, speculative um, investment. And so, you know, the second thing to consider is that you should really have this mindset that whatever you're going to invest, you better be okay losing it. And then, you know, the third thing is right sizing your specific allocation in your balance sheet. So making sure that you don't have more than 5% exposure. So, you know, I do think those are principles that are true today outside of the bubble. And they're also true in the middle of it. 
Um, but boy, you talk about the definition of the bubble, hoping you buy at one point with the hope. Well, you buy at one point with the hopes of just selling at a higher point. Boy, that was true in a lot of different corners and facets of crypto. Yeah. And I mean, the way you back into the valuation is by, you know, like if you look at some of the valuation work, people would say, if X percentage of payments are processed daily and crypto takes over, you know, a crazy percentage of it really rapidly, then yeah, the valuation makes sense 10 years from now. But, you know, the problem is, is that sentiment moves so much faster than infrastructure, right? And like, I believe, I like, I believe in crypto. Like, I think there's a lot of bullish use cases for it, but the valuation just got so ahead of itself that it just, it couldn't grow into it. Justin, and I think like, I think we need to like, not spend just like a second there and talk about it, right? Because like the problem with these companies isn't that like they they have above average earnings growth. The problem is that the, the estimation of future growth is so astronomical that even if they grow above average, like Wall Street doesn't care. They, they just like get overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, just like all humans do. And so when you just have such a high bar, like you know, any deviation from that extremely high bar, you'll get punished for it, right? Like I, we were talking before the show about um, this great resource that Jeremy Siegel put together from uh, Wisdom Tree. He looks at the, you know, the top performing, uh, you know, the companies with the highest price to sales ratio. So just looking at a valuation metric and it looks at, you know, what percentage over a five, over a 10 year period beat their benchmark on a return basis and a sales growth basis. And here's the this, this stat that blew my mind. On average, uh, the, the best, the highest price to sales companies, two out of three times they they underperform the benchmark, despite having sales growth that was approximately four x the benchmark. So, so they grew sales at four times, and we'll link to this in the show notes. But they grew sales at four four hundred percent relative to the benchmark, but still underperformed the benchmark. So, so they, so they won, you know, but the problem is relative to the valuation and everything got so high and so frothy. So like, I think it's really important to understand like, Hey, like crypto is a great example of this. It's not, it's not that we don't believe in the innovation. It's just the valuations got so ahead of themselves. The picture got painted so rosy, uh, that, you know, even beating, you know, beating the benchmark on, on a sales growth perspective is not enough. That is such an incredible stat. I mean, to do sales that are four times the rest of the S&P 500, that is a business that is winning at a really high level. And still their their stock price struggled because so much of their valuation was, was pulled into the uh, immediate present day. Their future valuation was pulled to the present day. I feel like we're going to come back to that point pretty strong here in, here in our second section. Um, what you know what I, I think another thing that maybe comes to mind is SPACs uh, potentially hit bubble territory as well. Uh, SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, uh, basically a publicly traded company that's formed for the purpose of raising capital through an IPO and then using that capital to acquire or merge with an existing private company. Um, so, you know, you could certainly make a case that SPACs got pretty popular there here in the past few years, and some of those hit bubble territory, and people lost a lot of money um, in some of those. Let's see, Jared, what other recent bubbles have we seen? 
And this one was on the show notes, and we and I feel like we kind of fall on different ends of the spectrum here. So I'm going to say it, and you can oh, defend yeah. it, and then I'm going to refute it. But Air, awesome, Air, I love it. Airbnbs. You you put Airbnbs as a as a bubble. So tell me more about that. Yep. So when we say Airbnb, so what we're thinking here is short term rentals as an investment. So if you go to, I don't know, Salt Lake City or Destin, Florida. Park City and you buy homes or maybe it's just a home or a condo and you're not going to live there. The purpose of you purchasing that is you're going to rent it out to vacationers for four days or four weeks at a time, short term rentals as an investment. So boy, this is a fun one. And Jared and I differ slightly. You know, I think where I fall on this camp is that short-term rentals are a bubble and we are in the first inning of seeing them pop. Um, So I think that if you are investing in short-term rentals, it's going to be a really difficult trek ahead. Uh, Also kind of fascinating, Jared, we did a podcast on this a couple years ago. And boy, that was right in the middle of, you know, basically short-term rentals being one of the easiest ways to, to make a lot of money in a really short period of time. And the podcast message there was, you know, those return those returns are not going to continue. There, there is literally no chance that that happens. Um, and so I'm glad glad we had that prediction as well. But what else should we kind of touch on here? What's your take? Why would you say they're not necessarily a bubble? Yeah, and this kind of bleeds into what I would call bubble watch, right? Like you, what you're saying about Airbnb is like I believe in philosophically. I believe the easy money has been made. If you missed the fat pitch of valuations that were 40% cheaper and interest rates that were 2 to 4% versus 7% today, like your ability to make money, like your future and net present value based on the the ch- that change in math is just the easy money's been made in Airbnbs, right? And I do believe like that some markets are going to be, some markets are going to perform very poorly, right? Because like legislative risk is a thing that is going to happen this net last, last decade that was very minimal in the prior decade because it was just such a new asset class and a new innovation, right? So like, um, so I think the easy money's been made. I think it's short-term rentals are overvalued, but there's so much demand for housing, right? We post GFC, we systematically just underbuilt, right? Builders came back scared and inflation was just kind of mild. And so like, there just wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of new household formation. And now it's just accelerating. Now the demand, uh, the demand is there, but the supply isn't right. So I think, and, and, you know, with people locked in at low rates, there's not a lot of houses entering the market unless people have to, because people don't want to exchange a, you know, sub 4% mortgage for, 7%, right? Because that drastically changes the affordability equation. So I think, you know, there's going to be people that have failed Airbnb empires that get bailed out because there's a baseline demand for residential real estate. So I actually do think we agree. I think we're in the early innings. I think it's too difficult to tell. I think the easy money has been made in Airbnb. And I think that some people are going to get bailed out because of, you know, real estate in general as an asset class. I think you know, we're kind of talking into the next one because it's bubble watch versus a bubble that's actually popped. Uh, I I think there's just kind of some secular bullish things. Yeah, that's a really good call out. Uh, Here's the tricky part and here's why it may not be a bubble. So the reason why Airbnb and the reason why short-term rentals exploded is because there's not really a better way to get more juice out of your squeeze. 
if you own real estate. So if you own a single family home and you rent it out to someone for a year or three years, a long-term rental, well, you can charge X. But if you do a short-term rental, I mean, you can charge, you're obviously charging a lot less for a night or five nights or a week or two weeks. But if you can you know, fill it out and have a decent level of occupancy, you can make way more than a long-term rental. So the numbers are so much more attractive with short-term rentals. And so, you know, I think that's a good call out because, man, the message from our podcast a year and a half, two years ago was, hey, these returns are never happening again, but a good operator who's buying well is still going to be able to come out okay, uh, but they probably need to buy properties that can still make sense even as long-term rentals. Um, so got to adjust those expectations, but, uh, Jared, anything else before we move on to number two? No, I just say attribution is matters here, right? I think like growth yeah. is going to be low single digits for these people, but the range of outcomes are going to be wide people who lose on the legislative or take a big bet on one geography or over leverage, right? Th there's going to be a ton of people that go under and there's going to be a ton of people that do really well, but it's going to like average out to just be really, really kind of tepid growth. Um, just because the range of outcome is wider, you know, it's, it's risky, especially if a lot of these Airbnb moguls uh, that you see on TikTok or social, like are employing leverage, right? It's a very delicate strategy. that's very susceptible to blowing up. The way I'd put it, if we're going back to 2015, 2016, 2019, and we're looking at 10 people who were buying short-term rental investments throughout the country, nine of them probably made a lot of money because it, interest rates were super low. The price of the home they were purchasing was really attractive. <laughs> the price was a lot lower than it is today. Um, and then we had a lot of pent-up demand for taking trips. So buying then, it was pretty easy to make money. Today, if we see 10 people buying them, Nine of them are not going to make a lot of money. It's going to be a lot less than nine. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to go into the next section so that we can talk about real estate in general. Um, but yeah, what do we think there? Yeah, I mean, I kind of gave my thoughts, but like, like real estate, right? So now we're talking bubble watch, bubbles that haven't popped. I think real estate, um, you know, prices are more expensive, right? I bought my home in late 2022. I'm well aware of the difference uh, in, in cost, right. Uh, per square foot. And I have a 7% mortgage. So just feeling that in all sorts of ways. But <laughs> I think that for the reasons I said, like there's still secular demand, right. And I think household formation and like millennials, like more people are still starting to work from home, like geographical remote flexibility is higher than it's ever been. So markets that historically weren't compelling are now compelling or can compete. And right, the fact that we just don't have enough houses. Uh, I think for all those reasons, yes, it's expensive, but I think there's a lot of room for it to grow more expensive. So I wouldn't say we we are in a bubble. Um, and two, right, like when you think of a housing bubble, I think of, you know, great recession, right? If you look at the borrowers and the balance sheet of people that are borrowing and their health and their credit score and their liquidity, it is just an exponentially different universe than it was back then, right? Like a bunch of variable loans, a bunch of, you know, people mortgaging a lot, like subprime lending, right? Like credit standards really have improved. Uh, so I would say, you know, there's not as much speculation or excess in the market that would just kind of make 
make things frothy or make it really susceptible to, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's not going to be declines, but bubble implies a pop. And when I think of pop, I think of 30 plus percent drawdown. And I just, I don't see that. I don't see that in real estate. What do you think, Justin? I think you're right. Um, I think we are in total agreement here, but I'm also going to think out loud and pose a really quick scenario where it does pop and where it is a bubble. Um, and then it'll be interesting to see kind of where we land after that. This is such a fascinating, compelling topic. So here's an interesting thought. Um, you know, where we live right now, um, and we're, we're planning to buy a house here in the next six to 12 months, uh, or really could be in the next two to 12 months. Um, so at some point soon, we're going to do this. One of the really tricky dynamics about the real estate market, uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking, you know, in this neighborhood in Fort Worth and in particular, the appreciation has been so fast and it has been so much that, Jared, it makes me ask the question, pretend that everyone had to repurchase their home today in a given neighborhood, let's say the one that we're in. How many of them could make that happen? How many people, if if they had to repurchase their home today, how many people could actually afford the home that they own now at today's market value with today's interest rate? I'd probably say minority, right? I think those people have increased their purchasing power and capability because they've grown their human capital, i.e., right? You buy based on what you could afford today. And then, you know, your income and earnings grow over time. So there's probably a, a subsection of people that could in fact afford it, but it's gone up multiples of, you know, what it probably cost. Uh, so I, I would say a, a minority of people, but, but Justin, even if that's the case, like we're, we're not like Canada, like our, our float, our interest rates don't float on mortgages. Like people are locked in totally. and, and absent some event that causes everyone to have to up and move, like it doesn't really matter if they can't afford it so long as you're in an economy or where people people stay people stay put yeah so i think it all comes down to that is there any action is there any event that causes even you know it you don't need everyone to sell you but you need a whole lot more people that are going to sell than we have today right now nothing is on the market uh, because no one could afford to move right now um, and so, yeah, there's this super fascinating dynamic where, you know, we look at kind of a, a certain neighborhood and you're thinking, huh, everyone bought this home for 400, 500, 600,000. And today it would go for 1.3, 1.5, 1.6. And yeah, it, it's a pretty crazy statement to say that most people would have no chance of buying the current home they own if they had to repurchase it today at today's market value with with today's interest rates. But how many people have to be forced to sell in order for a bubble to pop? What type of event would trigger that? Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you, Jared. I don't think it's going to happen. I think if we zoom out over 20, 30 years, we don't have enough homes. Home prices eventually are going to go higher. But I also think this is a really good thing to think about with the other topic in this section, tech stocks. Uh, and it's a really good principle to remember that when an asset class explodes in value in a really short period of time, that's happened with re real estate, you should adjust your future expectations. So is real estate going to grow at 7% a year over an eight-year window? Maybe it does. But if that's the reality, 
Well, it basically already did about six or seven years of growth in about 12 or 18 months after the pandemic. Um, and so the future growth might be very muted before eventually some of this incomes and just personal balance sheets get healthy enough to catch up to where real estate prices are for real estate to then take its next jump into 2030, 2040 and beyond. Yeah. I'm a big believer in like mean reversion, right? Like, like things are as never as bad or as good as they seem. If like the market's been screaming, like, you know, if, it's just the law of averages. If you're going to average 10% before inflation in the stock market, that doesn't mean you're going to get 10% a year. That means you're going to get years where it's higher and years where it's lower. And over time, it averages out, right? And so if so, if you have above average returns for a while, that means the go forward, you know, the go forward returns are probably lower, right? But tech stocks are really interesting because, right, a few things, their valuation relative to everyone else is just kind of like astronomical, right? Like I'm, I'm looking at this chart from JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, which you reference a lot. I'll, I'll share it in the show notes. But the top 10 stocks, which is, you know, Amazon, Google, uh, Meta, Apple, NVIDIA, uh, I think United Healthcare is in there, and then a couple other ones, but mostly very tech-centric. The, the current valuation is 27.7 times earnings, right? And that's 25% higher than its current average. And the remaining stocks have a multiple of 17.6 times earnings, right? So, you know, it's almost 33, almost 40% higher on a valuation basis. Uh, and two, right? Like I would say, you know, I, I don't think it's a bubble despite those things. I think the go forward returns are going to be meh. I don't, but bubble to me implies pop and implies face ripping 30% yep. down. I also think that these companies are just very different companies than back in the day, right? The, like the revenue per employee, if you would have told somebody in the 1950s that a company could have the, these revenue per employees numbers, they would have not believed it, right? And two, like, right there, the contribution of earnings that these companies have is significant, right? Like these 10 companies, these 10 companies contribute 22% of the earnings. And so like, wow. So I do think the valuation is rich. I do think returns are going to be meh. I but I don't think it's a bubble that's just going to that it, that's just going to pop cuz cuz I do think the, these companies are sort of fundamentally better companies than anything we've seen. And yeah, disruption, yeah, diversification which we'll talk about here in a sec, but you know, that being said, I don't think returns are going to be great. I think Nvidia especially has a tough road ahead of it cuz of how frothy the valuation is, but um but I, you know, I, I just make a case where I, I still keep them on bubble watch list. I don't, I don't think there's an impending popping, if you will. I think that's good. I think that's why you invest with humility. And, you know, when you think about tech stocks, there was such a good case. I mean, Jared, go back to uh, late 20 teens. So the late 2010s or just one or two years ago. There's also a case for, hey, tech stocks are worth a whole lot more than every other part of the stock market. So surely we're going to get some mean reversion. Let's go all in on the other parts of the market because surely tech stocks are – they've they're way too rich. They can't grow at this pace anymore. And they've done it again. Um, and so that could continue to happen. And that's why you never make wild bets or gambles or with housing. You know, it would make sense for housing to stay stagnant or even come down a bit. That would make all the sense in the world. But Jared, what happens if for some reason we wake up 18 months from now and interest rates are down significantly from where interest rates are today? Well, housing could pop up even higher. So 
It's just you cannot make direct investment actions based on some of these things because sometimes valuations can stay high and growth can happen longer than you expect it to. Yeah. So Justin, to kind of put a bow on this conversation, like what what should an investor take away from this? Because this, you know, you, our our podcast skews very technical and advice oriented. But the last, you yeah. know, twenty seven minutes have been you and I just riffing about whether or not we think things are in a bubble. And luckily, we don't have any, you know, we don't describe. We're very long term, passive, just believe in kind of global capitalism and letting it do its thing. So it's just kind of more speculating. But what, like, what principles can investors take away in light of kind of this reality of, you know, kind of understanding bubbles and just pulling forward expectations, but while still like investing in innovation, right? Because like so much of the world, the world's going to look very different and the S&P is going to look very different 50 years from now. Um, so what, what advice do you have for our listeners? You know, I think right sizing your portfolio and kind of matching it to your time frame is always a good decision. It's always a good play to make sure your investments are lined up with the time frame of when you need money in your actual real life. Um, so I think that's the very first starting point. Um, anything else before we kind of finish with, hey, fads are and bubbles can actually be a good thing? No, I would just, I would say like, okay, where where is like this showing up, right? Like, why are you excited? Is it the idea yeah. It, like, where's the showing up, right? If it's showing up in conversations you're having people, is it showing up in dial? Like, is it showing up in earnings calls? Like people, like CEOs are starting to reference it. Is it showing up in R&D, research and development dollars? Or, or is it like showing up in profits, right? Because like, like where it's showing up and like why you're excited is like a good, a good point of understanding, right? Of like, I'm investing this, what it could be, not what it is. And it's kind of like a, a it's kind of a balance of kind of what you talked about. Of, hey, I'm going to risk weight accordingly. Uh, we believe in, Pareto's principle, right? A small percentage of stocks, days, markets drive a vast majority of the return, right? So being diversified and not knowing, right? Instead of trying to bet on the horse we think is going to win the the uh, AI race, we we own a little bit of everything, figuring out, you know, the companies are going to duke it out themselves. And, and we will, if we own all of them, we're going to own the victor as well by proxy. That's right. In the long run, earnings are what matter. And, you know, we talked about bubbles, we talked about fads. Here's the difficult part, Jared, what you just said kind of implies the reality that, hey, there's going to be fads over the next 15, 20, 45 years that win big. And that's the way global capitalism always works. We expect there to be industries in 2050 that don't even exist today. Um, we expect there to be companies that are some of the 20 largest companies in, in America, uh, let's say 18, 17 years from now in 2040, we're going to see companies in 2040 that are some of the biggest companies in America and these companies don't exist yet. So that's the tricky part. Uh, and that's why you want to stay diversified. There will be a small number of things that come out of nowhere, get really popular, but they end up really changing the world. Um, and having exposure everywhere ensures that you have exposure there. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive, like how to invest in fads. It's just like own the market, right? Because the market gets yeah. a little overexcited about fads, but also own you know you own a bunch of different companies, so inevitably you you own the winners and the losers. But right, kind of getting back to what we talked to, the, the winners win so big that it kind of negates the losers over a long period of time. And it gives a little bit of hope to owning small caps, which hasn't been the most fun thing in the world. 
uh, because some of those small caps are eventually going to become large caps. And the way you really enjoy that ride is, well, you got to own some small caps. That's right. That's right. Well, Justin, I feel like we'll wrap it up there. Um, I would love to hear from our listeners, which, you know, asset classes on bubble watch that we didn't mention. Do you have a different take of whether or not we're in a bubble related to the asset classes we did mention ideas for future episodes? We always love hearing from our listeners podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.